You're listening to the 12th episode of Season 2 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. This podcast goes into a strict Christian upbringing and traditional church climate not working out well, but it's not an attack on faith. It's mainly about trying to retain some connection to God despite everything. It's also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, Peter Gray Grows Up. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 12, Promises, God's Country. When Christians learned that I had written a song about reaching out after God, the one from the previous episode, they very naturally, in their way, complained that there was no matching song to finish that story, to close that loop with God telling me he loved me and enfolding me in his glowing Caucasian arms at the church community in which he wanted me to get involved. I was very resistant to this idea, putting words in God's mouth in song form, then I finally decided to just do it anyway, in my way. I was raised to view the Bible as a collection of rules to follow. Others were raised to view it as a collection of wonderful promises, God's love notes to us, his human girlfriends that he made, who are way younger than he is and think he's dreamy. So in my typical fashion, I had a look at all the things one would wish as a much younger human girlfriend of God's that he promised. My life had been undeniably much harder and more alone and troubling and different from how Christians told me the lives of Christians were supposed to be. Our weeks were all supposed to start out with a day of honeymooning with God, walking on the beach with him with cute poems about him carrying us, presumably our sunscreen, shoes, and cell phone as well. There weren't supposed to be as many Christian friends killing themselves. Well, with Don Miller's definition that art is saying I was here and it was like this, I found that the whole walking on the beach, having a date with God thing wasn't what it was like for me at all. Now, it would be very devout of me to say that really, that's what it should have been like for me, and that's what God had wanted for me, only I had screwed it all up by watching Game of Thrones that time or whatever. But I wasn't convinced. Harold tells me that no matter how difficult things get or how badly other Christians treat him when he tries to speak truth to ecclesiastical power and expose smug cultures of complacent self-congratulation and spiritual quackery, he always has my Jesus. It sounds like a little warm glow he has that makes him feel good. Much of what he reads in the gospel he experiences as Jesus saying, I did this for you, Harold. I read it as, I expect you to live and die like me, my followers, just like I'm doing, and people aren't going to like it. It might be my upbringing or how I've read the Bible and the life I've had, but for me, God is more of a challenge than a comfort. He complicates things, gives me things to aspire to with challenging, harder options to take than I otherwise ever would have chosen to take. He pushes me not to simply let various things go. He inspires me to avoid a whole lot of shortcuts and digressions I might otherwise take. He holds me to an extremely high standard. Harold tells me the book of James is filled from start to finish with the love of Jesus for us. Well, I read the actual words, every one of them, the only words that are in that book, and it's a guy named James who, after a cursory mention of our Lord in the introduction, never mentions him again and mainly tells us things about how helpful it would be if we all learned to keep our mouths shut far more often than we do. And I'm not sure the Bible is quite so full of promises that God is going to make my afternoon nice as many would lead me to believe it is. 
One example of a promise in the Bible is the Apostle Paul thanking the Philippians for looking after his financial and material needs and promising that in return, the saints at Philippi's God would supply their need. The verse says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now many Christians take this as a promise that Paul's God will supply their own needs with hint of a heavenly standard of wealth contingent upon a proper walk with God and abstinence from watching The Sopranos, Breaking Bad, and The Wire, of course. Me being me, when a fresh-faced young Christian 20-something who had clearly never missed a meal in her life assured me that God had promised me a wife, a house, a car, a career, and everything that went along with it, I was skeptical. Naturally, I used the typical go-to example for injustice and messed-upness in the world, Africa. I told her, This very hour, Christian African children who've done nothing wrong will pray to their God earnestly for food so they won't starve. And Christian African children who've done nothing wrong but were born with AIDS will pray to their God for AIDS medicine so they won't die. And before this hour is up, some of those children are going to be dead. For sure. Now, if that verse really is a promise, not just to those specific Philippian Christians that year, but to all of us Christians forever, that God will always richly supply all of our mundane, physical, financial, and material needs, won't God have broken that promise to those African Christian children? Amy patiently explained that clearly what this proved is that what those children must have really truly needed more than all the other stuff was to die and go to heaven, and that God had supplied that need to die of starvation or AIDS and be with him by not providing the sandwich or AIDS medication that would have prevented it. Needless to say, I remained fairly unconvinced. Because I do believe in a God who allows praying Christian children with praying Christian mothers praying that they won't die to die anyway. I believe that because I've seen it happen right in front of me. Apparently a surprisingly large number of people I have known have had God supply their need to die as they and their loved ones prayed that they'd live. He's kept that promise by not providing mental health supports and successful surgeries and all manner of things. I was pretty convinced a couple of years ago that I really needed my cat not to continue dying, and I needed the MRI to reveal that my brain was not, in fact, rotting. But the cat died, and neurological damage was revealed in the brain I used to think up stuff, understand others, and express myself with, and with the left hand I used to form guitar chords and type things with. I guess I needed that brain damage, too, to teach me a heartwarming lesson about gratitude or something. I couldn't quite believe, as I'd been trained, that it was the Lord's vengeance taken upon me for my mockery of the wild whipped cream issue of messages of God's love or of talking openly about widely known, obvious, problematic realities within the Plymouth Brethren. I believe that God's ways can be dark and mysterious, but I don't think he's actually petty. Petty coming from the French word petit, meaning little. Christian people brethren and otherwise, have assured me that there's just no way God would have me wait for a wife and then not deliver one from Amazon with a credit for the shipment arriving a bit late. That would be too mean, they have said. Of course, they are very open to the idea that maybe God delivered a couple of fat cross-eyed ones with bad teeth and low IQs and I was ungrateful for his bountiful gift, so it's my fault. Or that I have been watching Six Feet Under and The Witcher and listening to Guns N' Roses, so I have made a life no Christian wife God could send would ever be comfortable in. Again, I remain unconvinced, because I've seen otherwise. If there is a God, and I think there is, we have to somehow grow up and live with the fact that he's not a vending machine. 
He's not a government program. He's not a participation medal, and he's not Santa Claus, because no, Virginia, God isn't Santa Claus. Obviously, once my brethren view of God as the provider of white, middle-class, comfortable Christian lives to white, middle-class, comfortable brethren people who lived worthy of white, middle-class, comfortable Christian lives died within me on the vine, there wasn't a whole lot of certainty left in me as to my faith. My faith in God is not a proud, triumphant, euphoric feeling I sing to the skies, put on t-shirts, Instagram bios, and mugs. It's a weak, trembling, embryonic thing being born again and taking its first shaky breaths of the jungle air. So, I couldn't write a sincerely proud, triumphant, euphoric song about God's promises. I could just barely make a bad pun on God's country, as in God's country music, and God's country is in the landscape, and do my best with it, though. When Christians have heard this song, they've asked me, if this is actually what God's like, then what's the point? Essentially, what's in it for me, then? Why is this God worth my believing in? I don't think God's about that. I think he's there whether you think he's delivering value for services rendered or not. I don't think he vanishes in a puff of hurt feelings if you decide he's not worth believing in. He's not your social worker, kindergarten teacher, or babysitter. He may be your father who is in heaven, but I don't think he's anyone's mom. Michael Vedder's father once told me that I'd given up everything for God. First my place in my own mainstream, worldly Canadian culture with TV, Star Wars, and Van Halen. Then my birth culture with Sunday school and Sunday morning breaking of bread, taking communion. Any place within that or a family or wife there. Everything, as far as Harvey was concerned. And according to the Bible, he said, God owed me had promised me he would repay people like me who'd given up or lost those things in his name. And not later, in heaven either. In this time, Harvey quoted from the Bible, saying that's what it said. Because that's the God Harvey clearly needed to believe in. But actually, God doesn't owe me the breath I'm using to say these words, nor the bandwidth I'm using to upload them to you. He didn't even owe me the sputtering electric brain signals that managed to get through the frayed myelin of my nervous system to make my fingers type this out to begin with. So I'm pretty glad to have all of it, nevertheless. It's all a gift. About the ideas I was raised with, about serving God and surrendering all to Him and doing only His will— Recently, I noticed that Michael Sweet of Striper had gotten very active online during COVID. I read his autobiography, which I heard about because he was on one-way Zoom chats with fans. I ordered his redone solo album, which I heard about because he was on one-way Zoom chats with fans. I wasn't doing a whole lot and was alone all the time, so I went on Michael Sweet's one-way Zoom chats with fans. The guy doesn't age. I typed in the Zoom chat that one track on his new album had a bit of a King's X vibe, and he laughed and said, yeah, maybe it did. In the 90s, Michael Sweet had left Striper and tried to go on his own once Striper had sort of stopped being Striper because of pressure from their record company. Apparently, there were also major drinking problems and crises of faith besides Seattle grunge killing their whole genre of hair metal music. People wondered what made Michael Sweet think he could go do a solo career without sharing the stage with the rest of his band Striper. Michael Sweet revealed that although Striper has four guys singing harmony on stage, He's written pretty much all the songs, and on the album, that's mostly him. Although Striper has a lead guitarist, Michael Sweet has written the songs, the main guitar riffs for them, and is doubling almost every note Oz Fox plays in the solos. He's rightly sick of people being shocked to hear he plays lead guitar at all. 
Most lead singers are holding the guitar more or less as a prop, but not Michael Sweet. The signature striper guitar sound isn't, as they told me at the guitar store back in the day, due to a harmonizer doubling and tripling Oz Fox's notes digitally. That's Michael Sweet playing those blisteringly fast harmony notes in exact unison with Oz Fox. Michael Sweet plays his own solos and doubles them himself, playing everything in the song but drums and bass. It sounds like this. like Striper. When Michael Sweet does all of the vocal harmonies, again, it sounds like Striper, but it's just him. guy coming up on 60 years old and still giving it all he's got to knowing no one much cares about his music hurts. What else hurts is hearing him sing what really seems to be his faith and remembering when I could sing it in the same way and feel it like he seems to. When I was a child sitting under the grim warnings about this evil world that hated our precious savior from people like Albert Hayhoe and Smith Falls in Ottawa, the guys who were going to be striper were young teenagers wandering unsupervised on the Hollywood Strip, checking out the metal bands and doing what it took to become them from the age of 15. There were cigarettes, whiskey, and drugs, and girls. And just like people find in the Christianity-inspired dogma of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're the sort of young person who is wandering unsupervised, unscrutinized, unscheduled, unlimited, unheeding, in the middle of what the Plymouth Brethren call this evil, wicked world in the middle of the night, you might just screw everything up big time. If in your growing up, you never developed the self-control it would have taken to sit in a high school classroom, let alone a church, for an hour, so you were wandering the streets till all hours of the night looking for trouble, this might not be a predictor of lifelong success. In fact, if that's you, what you need, what is life-changing, what saves your soul, are limits, structure, an organization like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or a community outreach program or a church that keeps tabs on you, a partiers anonymous, a sinners anonymous, if you will, that makes you stop and think and question your decisions, come up with some limits, learn how to put on the brakes, learn how not to drive full tilt into walls. On a recent chat with fans, Striper lead guitarist Oz Fox, the guy who does this...
recently recovered from the first of two brain surgeries this year to remove a cancerous tumor and busily making sure all of his guitar pathways are still working, though some of his brain has been removed, addressed something I chatted at him directly. I typed in that I'd had an MS attack recently and had quickly regained my own ability to play the guitar badly until I could play almost as badly as ever, so I really felt what he was going through this year, though my situation was far less serious than his. Oz is so used to the initials MS, standing for Michael Sweet by now, the lead singer of Striper, that he thought for a moment I was jokingly or maybe angrily suggesting I'd suffered a Michael Sweet attack a few years back. Then Oz figured it out. Well, he put down his guitar, leaned forward, looked very intently into his webcam, so it looked like he was looking me right in the eye, though of course he couldn't see me, and he said, MS, not Michael Sweet, multiple sclerosis, that's serious stuff. Mike Moore, all I can say is keep on doing whatever you can still do for God. Surrender all to Jesus, man. That touched me on a pretty deep level. Oz didn't mention anyone else by name or lean into the camera like that. Because contrary to what Oz Fox knows, my neurological condition, at least for the moment and maybe for the rest of my life, is extremely mild compared to what he's in the middle of. But yeah, keep on doing what I can still do. It's just a lot harder. Typing, remembering stuff, finding words, having enough energy, playing guitar. Serving God? That's got a lot of baggage around it, because it always meant meeting the expectations of the meeting folks to no real utility to anyone at all. It served no one, really. And surrendering all to Jesus? More about that in a moment. As I said before, Oz Fox used to party on the Hollywood Strip in the 80s and his teens, getting drunk and high and going to see Motley Crue, etc., while trying to score with rocker chicks gave up all of that, getting welcomed into a community of Christians who were determined to show him a better way of the kind Striper sings about in their songs. Oz went from being an unsupervised teen doing whatever he wanted, with no schedule, structure, or obligations, no one watching his every move, to surrendering that to a church group, trusting them to speak for God. Well, that's not exactly the situation for all of us. Once Mark Vetter started accidentally driving into the wrong American states because of the profound state of intoxication he was in, he had to attend court-mandated Alcoholics Anonymous meetings every week. For him, it was just like his childhood all over again. The endless hours of sitting in rooms with people who talked about how, but for a higher power, they'd still be sinning, um, drinking. A lot of them were pretty stupid and boring people when they weren't drinking, Mark said. And Mark started out in life with not too much unsupervised freedom, but that ironclad, clamped-down, supervised, scrutinized, scheduled, limited Plymouth Brethren childhood box. Stuff he had to fight free of with everything he had. And it all seemed to end in his becoming a raging drunk. Sending him back to more meetings didn't work at all. In fact, Mark eventually chose to go to jail instead of showing up at these meetings. If you have no structure in your life, adding some structure will save your soul. If you have little freedom in your life, taking even more of it away will have the opposite effect entirely. It will crush your last spark of life out of you. I was raised that it simply wasn't my place as a Christian to figure out what I wanted or who I was and what I could do with my life, but rather to just do what God wanted. Sounded great. In many ways, I was like my mother and unwilling to get involved or commit to decisions. 
I'm so decisive about what I don't want to do that people think I'm terribly decisive. But I totally get the appeal of sitting in the back seat and letting God drive when it comes to the important decisions about whether we turn left or right or go straight here. That was, in fact, my plan all along. Wife, career, car, house, which one to buy, what to do on holidays. I was always hoping to just leave those decisions up to God. Goodness knows I didn't have a clue. But here's what happened. I grew up having that hammered into my skull. We don't get to make our own choices as to life decisions and turning points and so on. That was something we needed to leave up to the meeting. I mean, God. This is why brilliant brethren girls became nurses instead of doctors, and brethren guys didn't take karate and became accountants rather than restaurateurs or musicians or soldiers. They were letting God guide them into precisely what the brethren thought they should and shouldn't do with their lives. A large number followed Jesus literally and became carpenters to surrender all to him, to let God guide our path. They kept talking and singing and preaching about surrendering, surrendering all, giving up control, surrendering all to God. Whether it was those dour old guys who hated art and entertainment, or those earnest young guys with the guitars and the whispery, painfully sincere awestruck with their own devotion voices, they all seemed to want me to surrender to them, to the mood, the idea, the assumption, the song, the doctrine, the strategy they were pushing. They wanted me to show up, shut up, and surrender. Right there, where they held sway. Well, I could just surrender all to God myself, couldn't I? Like, I didn't need the guy with the guitar or Pearl Hayhoe would help me do it. But here is the problem. There was a lot of ruckus in my 20s when I grabbed hold of the wheel of my own life, so to speak, moving aside the white-knuckled controlling grip of the meeting folks and no longer doing that 10 miles an hour under the speed limit to make sure you don't even nearly speed lifestyle of the gathered saints. I took away all their control over my life and my identity, my all, and tried to turn it all over to God. And you know what? He didn't play that game. At all. In their absence, he was not remotely interested. Before, whether there was a God or not, it was guaranteed that you were going to see me leading what the gathered saints thought a proper Bible-obedient Christian life looked like if it was surrendered to them, I mean, surrendered to God. But now, whether there was a God or not, it was clear that I was going to have to make my own life decisions. God wouldn't make them for me. 
I badly wanted God to just communicate to me, a bolt of lightning on a boulder would have been fine, and force my life direction, give some kind of a sign, anything. I would pray, I would fast, whatever it was, if God would make my life decisions for me. I tried, like most Christians do, to somehow imagine he sort of was when he wouldn't cooperate. Got a pretty clear sense, though, that I was on my own if I expected God to play this game. And now it's time, children, for another page from the book of Bill. Lighting a new smoke after having been dumped after not dating a church girl named Jen, Bill once said, Christians just do whatever they're going to f***ing do anyway and tell you God told them to do it. And I think I see that happening all the time. To be kinder than Bill, slightly, I think it's a fair statement to say that a lot of Christians more or less roll the dice as to their decisions, kind of trying to summon up their own unconscious self to either, depending on how much baggage they carry, allow them to do what they want and say God wanted them to have it, or to deny themselves what they want and say God won't let them have it because they wanted it. This kind of thing was a fantastic way of getting entirely free of responsibility for anything. What made you choose to go to this church? I didn't choose it. The Lord did. I'm merely obeying his leading. And it's not a church. It's just a bunch of people following the Lord's leading. We are where he wants us to be, right here. So it's not a church, a Christian group, or an organization? Oh, no. We all just end up in the same room as the Lord himself led all of us to be there. It's weird. You have no pastor. What led you to make that choice? We didn't choose that either. The Lord did. We're just obedient to him and his word. God said to have no pastor? Yes. What about the part in the New Testament about God giving us pastors? That's not what that means. You also have no instrumental music in your worship, though you sing songs. Yes, we're obedient to the Lord in this as well. God said to have no instruments? Yes. What about the part in the Old Testament about praising the Lord with that huge list of instruments there in Psalms, was it? Yes, Psalms. That's not what that means. And women can't take an active role in your group? It's not a group, and no. God said not to let women play the same role as the men do? That's right. What about the verses from Paul to all the various female names serving God in the various assemblies in his epistles? That's not what that means. They are to be silent and have their heads covered during meeting. Doesn't the apostle actually say that women are to cover their heads while praying or prophesying? Yes, and so they are obedient to the Lord in this. Do you actually allow women to pray or prophesy? Oh, yes. But only silently? Well, yes. In this also, we are obedient to our Heavenly Father and His Word. What else should a Bible-believing Christian do? Each woman needs to search her own heart and be obedient to the Lord's leading, following her own private conscience in the matter. And if she does that and tells you the Lord wants her to get up and pray or prophesy? We'd have to remind that sister of what obedience to the Lord and His Word mean and what that looks like. Why did you kick that guy out of your group? We didn't, and we don't have a group. Is Jared in your group anymore? No one is in or not in a group of any kind. I've told you this. Can Jared take communion with you guys on Sundays? We prefer to call it, as the Word of God does, the breaking of bread and the Lord's Day. And sadly, no, not at this point in time. Why not? 
In this, we are dutifully following the direction of the Lord as laid out for us in his word. We can do nothing less. Will you personally eat meals with Jared? Well, no. Sadly, in this, I must obey the Lord's leading as well. God told you not to eat with Jared anymore? Yes, in principles laid out in his word, because of the choices Jared made. Can I take communion with you next Sunday? Lord's Day. The breaking of bread. And no, not next Lord's Day anyway. We'd have to have a meeting about it and visit with you a few times. To check me out. Got it. Could I break bread with you if I was still associated with another Christian group too and perhaps taking communion with them every second Sunday? Well, no, that would certainly not be in order. Because God says no and you're just obeying him? Yes, you get it. I think I do. As far as I could tell, if God was saying anything to me in any way, he was saying, I gave you yourself and your life. What are you going to manage to do with it all? I want to see. I was saying with Michael Sweet, Jesus Christ, I want to serve you. Could I serve God? Could I please him? If it wasn't, after all, about obeying unspoken brethren rules, how would I ever know if God took any pleasure in me or my life at all? Never forget that, boys and girls. The all-seeing eye of God is watching everything you do. When you do things just to please yourself, that is sin. And Romans 6 and 23 says, the wages of sin is death. According to the gathered saints, you can either serve the Lord or live to please yourself, and they have strong opinions as to which of those I'm doing right now. Some brethren men sweep the floor of the meeting hall or arrange the chairs or set out the communion table or read the portion of the Bible out loud for people or start the tune to the hymns as they have no instruments. And I know I'll never be allowed to serve the Lord in any of those ways. What would serving the Lord look like then for me? Could I be any use to him at all? The brethren teaching is clear. Obey God or die. Do you feel that living death feeling you call depression? That's your fault. It's the direct result of you living to please yourself. That's God making you feel that living death, that lack of J-O-Y. Because never forget that we worship a God of death and love too, I guess. Well, when it came to all that, what good did my life do anyone? Did teaching kids who no more want to learn new words or to read or write better than our dogs wanted baths growing up count? I sure didn't feel like attending meetings served God or me. Each week I upload another episode of this podcast and look at the roughly 10 people who at least started listening to last week's episode at some point over the next seven days, and I wonder if that does any good for anyone either. I don't know. I don't hear a thing from anybody. I know many think it's a bad thing to rehash or dwell or not move on from the past. Well, this is how I move on from it. And I'm angling to be available to others who also want to move on from it, rather than simply keep repeating it or feeling it or pretending it's not following them around everywhere they go for the rest of their lives. I don't even know who those 10 people who clicked on my podcast last week are. They're not mostly friends that I know in real life, I don't think. My friends don't listen to it apart from Troy. I listen to your podcast. I think it's fantastic. It, it really does remind me of, of playing on some of those songs and hearing them over the years. 
And I actually, I totally cried laughing um, when you did your impression of Bill. Oh, talk about spot on, man. The rest say they're very behind in episodes, which I go ahead and assume means they've stopped listening for good. But I wondered, all those things about serving and pleasing God back in my 20s, if there was a God, and I thought there was, as near as I could tell, his response was, I want you to live the life I gave you. I want you to want things. I need you to need things. I love you, love things. I made you to make things. I want you to want things. I need you to need things. I made you to make things. God, I wondered, are you covering Cheap Trick at this point? It was clear that no matter how much I read my Bible and prayed, if I was careful to push aside every loudmouth Christian jerk determined to speak for God and tell me what God wanted, God gave me essentially a bunch of decades and the whole planet and wanted me to make the most of it, explore it, figure it out, experiment with it, enjoy it maybe, be responsible about it, be grateful for it possibly, not waste it, not spend so much time thinking about sin and death and hell and the cross and worship and church and doctrinal differences in my own place in piety contests, that I spent my whole life missing almost every sunset and moonrise, every beautiful face and amazing voice singing amazing songs, every incredible athlete achieving things you'd think no one merely human could. God had, it turned out, made a whole world and a whole bunch of people places and things, and I'd been raised to reject most of it and hide from it in a church we didn't call a church with hundreds of rules we didn't admit were rules. Or there was pressure to feel the need to try to put a sickening, thick coating of neon pink bubblegum church icing over everything to make it Christian enough for people like us, be it steak, fries, corn on the cob, Guinness sale, or chicken fingers. Pink Christian icing went over the lot of it if it was going to be on our table. It needed to look Christian. You needed to be able to taste the Christianity in it. An aside, religious trauma therapist Angel DeSantis, raised in a full-blown physically and sexually abusive Christian cult, notes what a power grab, a control tactic it is, to insist that all the pleasant experiences of all members be coming from church-related things or religious activities sanctioned by them. So all of these things that are good and healthy, if you are in an abusive religion, they won't let you feel any positive emotion unless you tie it to God. And of course, they control the narrative of who God is and what God is for you. So they allow you to feel positive emotion pending what, quote, God thinks of you, which is, of course, what, what they, the human being who's trying to control you, is actually feeling about you. If a thing is nice, it's suspect, unless you can redeem it by making it Christian somehow, which generally involves making it churchy or Christian community branded in some way. You need to speak of it with special jargon. You can't say that Logan kicked ass or tore it up or was in the zone when he was playing his guitar solo. No, Logan has to be giving an anointed, sanctified guitar solo for the edification of the community so everyone can love on him 
Ew. Susan has not just made an incredible, delicious apple pie. No, she is serving her community in love and is equally in danger of getting loved on. Imagine the dry cleaning costs. In extreme environments, this ends up meaning that if you ever want to feel good, you need them. And if you feel good and it doesn't involve them and their stuff, then you're messed up to be feeling good at this point. If you feel good, then what are you saying is wrong with their stuff? Are you saying that their stuff isn't the only good stuff after all? Who are you to say that? It is the acme of foolishness to confuse fleeting pleasure for things that have deep spiritual significance, like Logan's worship guitar solo or Susan's women's retreat apple pie. This is all a way of turning pleasure into shame, long practiced in human society and certainly not limited to the religious realm. Dear social media posts properly take a stance against systemic racism and support traditionally marginalized minority peoples? Or are they just fun that make you happy? I've repeatedly gone into how my church raised us to fear being seen as just normal human beings, rather than special fundamentalist Bible elves of the forest who were of purer hearts than to partake of the regular pleasurable pastimes of the mundane humans around us. How we were taught to fear being defiled, made dirty, infected, corrupted by how we entertained ourselves and how recreation was a central focus of their control. Two things that jumped out at me at the time were A, a part I'd read when I was a child in Pilgrim's Progress, where the worldly mundane humans try to throw clods of dirt on the Christian pilgrims in their spotless robes, and instead of their robes getting stained by the dirt, they seem to be unstainable. The dirt rolls right off. It won't stick. Hmm. Maybe germophobia isn't next to godliness after all. Maybe being spiritual means it's harder rather than easier to defile or corrupt you. B. Jesus, a crap disturber of the first order, in one of his many condemnations of the religious folks of Jerusalem, points out that with their elaborate traditions about hand washing and caretaking and eating, they'd missed a vital point. It wasn't what went into their mouths that defiled them. That, Jesus said, all came out of one's bowels as crap anyway. It was, he said, extending the crap metaphor, what comes out of us that defiles we ourselves and not eating a cheeseburger, so to speak. So, to get a bit more Jewish about this, Jews got defiled if they touched a dead body, menstruated, gave birth, had sex, or had a bowel movement, among many other things. And there was no shame in this defilement. It was a fact of life. You live, you come in contact with the world, your body gets rid of stuff and performs its natural, messy, but shame-free functions, and you wash and try not to get your semen, blood, excrement, or pallbearer's hands on everyone else and their food. Living means getting superficially dirty and dealing with it, daily. Shame is not step one in that doctrine. It's not even part of the solution. There's a whole heresy, in fact, condemned by the Catholic Church, devoted to needing to believe that Jesus was never human, never physical enough to feel socially overwhelmed, to get frustrated, to hunger, to thirst, to spit, to shed tears, to void his bowels, to believe that he was somehow born without breaking a woman's hymen or coming into physical contact with the vagina at any point in the process. And we were brethren people who didn't quite take it that far, but we were raised to dualism. Dualism has never been terribly comfortable with the physical, the body. The spirit matters and is good, according to this teaching. The body doesn't and is the problem. St. Francis of Assisi famously jokingly referred to his own celibate monkish body as Brother Ass, as in, I'll get up and see if I can rouse Brother Ass to come downstairs and commence on prayers for you all. 
In fact, it's a marker of Christianity-living women of my acquaintance to immediately take yoga, learn how to breathe, go vegan, look at and inhale the aromas of fragrant candles, oils, and soaps, and otherwise label spiritual a whole portfolio of things that are clearly them trying to get more comfortable with the purely physical, the body. Getting in touch with the body is so emotionally profound they can't help but ascribe supernatural spiritual significance to this. They view people who are most comfortable being physical entities in a physical world as the most spiritual. And of course, they predictably start talking about vibes and energy soon enough, believing that some things are just plain negative, whether there's a God to say so or not. And if there is, they are quite certain that she agrees with me, that is to say them. It's not just that someone in a room is unpleasant to them. They turn what in a church had been a judgment that the thing was unscriptural or disobedient to God or wrong, and they call it negative energy or bad vibes. They take a personal reaction and elevate it to a cosmic reality. I have more than once watched a TV show or had a conversation joking around with a Christian person and found that although some elements in the show or whatever might have well been a bit distasteful, what was truly upsetting and indicting was what then came out of that person's heart and mind and mouth. Not what had gone in, but what came out, which thing had been in there prior to that and had been suddenly revealed. Now, we were raised, quite contrary to scripture, to think that we all start out pure, and if we sully our spotless Christian Bible elf selves with stuff on TV or at the movies, it goes in and defiles our pure selves. I quickly came to believe that it's more about what's inside already. Things we tend to call baggage and trauma are certainly part of this. If something on the internet calls out to you and finds an answer deep within your heart, this is not something being inserted in, but something being found already resident in your heart. And shame, again, never helps. So if you found dark impulses and thoughts and feelings disrespectful or harmful to yourself and or others, that was good to know. Vital, in fact, stuff to choose not to act upon, part of what Jung calls our shadow. If you repress that stuff, deny that it's part of you, and try to blame HBO or Pornhub or worse yet Disney+, Plus, things are not going to get better for you anytime soon. The Bible is about studying yourself to see what's sick or hungry or stunted or confused and trying to get healing or otherwise sort that stuff out. Shame is not a helpful part of that process and it's what's leaking out of there, not what's leaking into there. The worst thing that happened to me growing up, as I've said many times before, was all the nothing. The lack of intellectual, societal, spiritual, and emotional stimulation. The enforcing of an environment in which the air, shall we say, had gotten stale to the point of containing very little oxygen anymore. Wormy, dried-up manna gathered a century previous, offered up as supper today. But we'd rather blame some YouTube channel or whatever for supposedly putting sickness, hunger, stuntedness, and confusion inside us. If you're getting healthy inside, nothing much can touch you. If you've got woundedness, baggage, sickness, or whatever in your heart, nothing say for or from you until that starts getting dealt with. People from my Christian circle have earnestly, sincerely, repeatedly asked me what exactly was meant by this dealing with things concept. What even was that? How does one deal? They all dealt by carefully not thinking about a giant list of things. Christian Rabbi Marty Solomon, perhaps talking about something else, advised that if one is diabetic, one has to stay out of the candy store and take one's insulin. Well, contemporary church is saccharine to me, pure sugar. It makes me feel sick inside, and I think the reason it does this 
is because it makes me sick inside, spiritually and in every other way. There are the two basic kinds of churches, as I've said, the ones that need to be happier than normal people and the ones that need to be righter than normal people. And I was raised in the latter, so the former never really worked for me before, so long as I thought like that. I know, I I tried. And the thing is, once I shifted focus and grew into a fairly different kind of person, the contemporary cheerful church stuff suits me even less. Searching for real God all the time has not made me less dark or more sugary. People still insist on trying to get me to chow down on that steak, mashed potatoes, and green beans with that bubblegum pink Christian icing spread thickly all over them, insulin or no insulin. I have to insist that that precise kind of food makes me unwell, because it does. Amps any depression I might be staving off at the time right the hell up, fuels my dark feelings with pure hellfire. That's what church does for me. It depresses the hell into me. Do not, under any circumstances, take someone who has trouble feeling anything other than deeply melancholy and drag him or her into a room filled with people who are all apparently effortlessly tripping absolute balls on techno, on football, on Jesus. It doesn't matter. This will not cheer them up most of the time. In fact, it generally makes it so much worse, painfully underlines their difference and their problem without doing anything else, certainly anything helpful. It's like taking a newly paralyzed, traumatized quadriplegic to a track and field meet to see if it makes them feel a bit more runny. Like showing porn to someone who's been repeatedly raped in an attempt to try to spark a healthy interest in sex. That is absolutely not how helping people works. So cut it out. But back in the day, various things were tried. And the only thing that worked was to stop trying to force my faith, to stop putting myself in rooms full of people who found my questions and emotions deeply upsetting and harsh their Jesus buzz, who demanded to know what made me different and how much longer I was going to be like this. So I abandoned the traumatic ordeal of going into those rooms at all, and I feel a lot better. But right on cue, this raised a programmed-in fear. If I didn't constantly signal how special and Christian and different I was by all the beds with peas between the mattresses I was too much of a true princess to be able to get a good night's sleep on, what if people didn't even know I was a Christian? I wasn't going out to church. My Bible reading and prayer could not be seen by anyone. What if people just viewed and treated me like only a regular human being? What if I had to succeed at being that? I have learned there are far worse things. Maybe I'd figured out, in very general terms, what God wanted for me, and it wasn't what I wanted him to want, needed him to need, or would have loved him to love. I think he'd given me a world, and a self, and a life, and he wanted me to live them, fully, fairly, fearlessly, fiercely. I think he was waiting to see what I'd manage, like a proud father, maybe. If I was a flaky Christian with a one-book-solves-all self-help book, that could be it right there. Fully, fairly, fearlessly, fiercely. The four Fs that will unlock your inner Aslan. Handy study guide for book groups explaining this life-changing book included. I hear your objections. Enjoy Enjoy what what God God sends? sends? That's That's too too easy. For you, maybe. And where's the structure? Where are the limits, the awareness of what's too much and too far? Well... I grew up with a distorted view of all of that. No one seemed to have a clue about what too many rules look like, all of us being too limited, not going far enough. So my challenge as to limits and rules, generally, 
is to learn to feel safer having fewer of them, to know what the limit on limitation should look like, to scale all that back a bit and see if I can catch a glimpse of God that's not neurotically curated by Christians. They sure don't like letting God off the leash they think they've got him on. And I didn't grow up knowing how to celebrate and enjoy things the way most people did at all. So that's actually the hard part for me. Different things are hard or easy for different people. In case you haven't noticed, the lifelong challenge for me and many like me, the hardest thing by heritage, upbringing, family, and church culture has been to respond appropriately to joyful things. Jesus first, others next, yourself last, J-O-Y. The Jesus, well, the meeting first, the expectations of others next, and yourself never approached to J-O-Y made me want to J-O-Die for real. And not everyone I used to hang out with at meeting is still here on this earth to talk to about any of this either. Imagine if our lives on earth really are practice to get along well in heaven one day. Are we going to be able to relax, connect, appreciate, celebrate, and consistently respond properly to joyful and wonderful things there? Or are we trying to build up an immunity, a resistance, a sour-faced, judgmental response, dare I say it, anxiety, to things to which the only sensible, sane, healthy approach is joy and acceptance? Are we trying to prepare ourselves? to be consistently uncomfortable dealing with those kinds of things, of being uncomfortable one day dealing with heaven itself, to proudly say at the marriage supper of the Lamb that no, we don't drink alcohol, trying to grasp the idea that God would, or ever could, smile on me has generally tended to make my head explode. Somehow, growing up believing in a God who loved me so much he wouldn't send me to hell after all and probably wouldn't kill me either so long as I didn't party failed to instill the unthinking God is my buddy attitude I see in a lot of church Christians. With a baritone voice, I've always felt I could sing Johnny Cash, an old school country, but always wanted to sing rock and roll instead. With this song, I decided to go for it though. It's called God's Country after all. It's not really my style, so I got a lot of help with this song. First, I got George to play drums on it in his store. Then he got a mandolin down from the wall and a much more expensive mic than I could ever afford and played mandolin into my computer for me too. And then we did lap steel. We had trouble both with the instrument, which needed some fiddling with it to keep it in tune, and also with George playing an instrument he didn't normally play. But with careful editing on my part of several takes, we got something that gave it that essential country twang sound. One year at my high school, we had a science teacher, who we sometimes called Beaker, but whose real name was Tyler, who delighted the kids by wearing his goggles on top of his head most of the day and having a fire engine red lab coat which he wore over t-shirts with science puns on them. 
I got Tyler to play piano on a few of my songs, including this one. Tyler mentioned hating country, especially that That sound sound that makes makes it sound like country. So I muted George's pedal steel while we got Tyler's take and, of course, put it back in the mix later. I tried to sing like a hayseed, but mainly just did straight-up harmony vocals, mostly in a deeper register, and it mostly just sounds like my regular stuff. You love to live, but I won't say how long you have. I refuse to make your life decisions for you. Because they're part of what I put you in this big world to explore. But I promise this. I don't plan to bore you. Not content to try for a plain old country song, and having a surprisingly hard time singing it as country as I wanted, I came up with a God God effect effect. for the voice. God's voice is described in the Bible as being like the voice of many waters, so I kind of pictured Niagara Falls. It was just an alteration of the normal vocal. I gave you life to live, but I won't say how long you have. I refuse to make your life decisions for you. Originally, I did it with a plain old six-string acoustic guitar. Once I learned about that Nashville trick of putting the six 12-string strings on a spare acoustic, I could take it up a notch.
I didn't promise you'd live to see old age. I didn't promise that you'd have somewhere to sleep. I didn't promise that I'd keep you free from cancer. But not a tear falls down uncounted when you breathe. Gave you life to live, but I won't say how long you have. I refuse to make your life decisions for you. Because they're part of what I put you in this big world to explore. But I promise this, that I don't plan to bore you. Be someone to hold you I didn't promise There'd be folks to understand I didn't promise To reward your every good behavior But if you look for it now and then You'll see my hand I made a lot of things That I really hope you go Check out for everything there is a time and season. Enjoy the things you can, and if you can survive and rest, I don't promise that you will always know my reasons. I gave you life to live, and I won't say how long you have. To make your life decisions for you Because they're part of what I put you in this big world to explore But I promise this, that I don't plan